what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 35. Thank you so much for joining us. Tonight we have a returning guest with us, it is Matt Sergio from the Occult Beatles and Conspiro TV. Now the first time Matt was on the show was episode number 23 and it was titled The Occult Beatles and the Counterculture Conspiracy. And we spoke a lot in that episode about how the Beatles and other musicians and artists were used to help socially engineer society with of course the Tavistock Clinic never far behind in the background. And they use these artists and these musicians to try and take us to a more debased morality, to essentially where we are today. This was all part of one continuum, taking us from the family values, the Christian ethics towards something much more debauched, a society in which young people no longer respected their elders or their parents, in which drugs became very prevalent, in which traditional relationships were scorned at and free love and open relationships became more normalised. And this is essentially the story that we've been trying to unpack. How did we get to where we are today? And Matt is somebody who has some key pieces of the puzzle. Now, in today's episode, we're going to go back even further in history before the Cultural Revolution of the 1970s and 60s. In fact, we're going to go all the way back to the turn of the century to discuss a little-known group called the Bloomsbury Set. Now, the Bloomsbury set were absolutely instrumental in driving culture. There was novelists, famous novelists like Virginia Woolf, for example. And it just so happens that everyone who joined this group ended up playing a very prominent role in the preceding 40, 50 years, particularly when it came to culture, but also when it came to economics and finance too, as you're going to find out. Now, it just so happens that they were all based in and around Bloomsbury in London, which is also the place, of course, where the Tavistock Clinic originated. So... I'm going to leave you on that teaser because this one is a real rabbit hole and I'm very excited to get into it with Matt. So in part one, we're going to be looking at who the Bloomsbury set were, what their stated goals were and what they were getting up to behind closed doors. Then in part two, we actually go to looking at Bloomsbury itself and try and understand what the hell was going on there. Why was this space so filled with royal societies and institutions, the Academy of Art and Drama, the School of Egyptology, the Architectural College? Why is it so filled with all these spaces that are just beside the Tavistock Clinic? Why did so many key people, why did they all live in and around Bloomsbury? What was it that drew them there? And was there actually something else going on? So I'm going to leave it there for the introduction, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Members, please head over to parallelmike.com where you can sign in to listen to part one and part two. If you're not a member yet but would like to support my content and listen to those longer form episodes with part one and part two, please consider becoming a member. Not only will you get to listen to the full episodes and find out some of the information that you can't find out in the public domain because I don't put it out there, but you'll also be supporting my research ongoing. And if you enjoy it, that's a great thing to do. So with that, I hope you're all well, healthy and reasonably happy. And like always, I will see you in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We're joined today with a returning guest. His name is Matt Sergio and he publishes content over on Conspiro.tv on YouTube. He also runs a website called The Occult Beatles. Matt is an independent researcher and he puts out fantastic content exploring the idea that the whole counterculture scene of the 1960s and 70s was perhaps a social engineering project, which is exactly what I believe. Uh, Matt, you've been on the show before. For listeners, that was number episode 23, and we explored the Beatles specifically and how they may have been used as part of this social engineering. But before we get started, Matt, just a quick hello. How are things going for you? 
yeah, good. Busy, busy, busy. You know, articles, writing articles, researching, putting together podcasts for Conspiro TV and my website, uh, The Cult Beatles, and also Conspiro Media, my other site, which is where I really do specifically look at the 60s counterculture scene, the so-called counterculture scene. Um, that's what it's called. But um, I don't know if we mentioned this before in the last podcast we did together, but um, a lot of people who were in that scene um, have since sent me emails after watching my podcasts and video presentations on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, and who've read my articles and said to me, uh, Matt, this count, they said to me, Matt, look, love your work, but this counterculture tag we didn't call it counterculture then they didn't call it counterculture then they in 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 england they called it underground it was the underground movement um so yeah i'm busy you know with all of that you know putting together podcasts and researching all the time just i just keep moving just keep going you know thanks thanks for having me back on it's great brilliant well, well people loved the last episode matt they really liked it and i think you're putting out the best research that i've seen on this I, I really love how you do it. And we're going to talk in part two about this tour that you did of Bloomsbury. And that was just fantastic. I watched it again today. And it's a three hour video. So you certainly don't hold back when you're doing something. You give a proper, uh, real in depth analysis, which is exactly what I do. So I, my hat's with you on that one because some people want to hear it in 20 minutes. I would love to do a 20 minute video sometimes, but the, or, or a very short article because my articles do. They're quite extensive, exhaustive, as one person reviewed them. Um, but the problem is, when when I've done that in the past, when I used to, when I used to go onto chat forums before I started getting into writing articles and putting together websites and stuff. So this is like pre twenty eleven when Conspira Media, my site, came along. I used to put together little bits and pieces, little mini articles on chat forums and stuff, and. The problem is when I do that, every time I did that, somebody, a load of people would post back at me and ask loads of questions. You know, like why? Oh, I, I read this in your little mini article. Why? Why is that? Why do you think this? Why do you think that? What happened to this person you mentioned? What happened to this situation? And I just think, oh, goodness, you know, it's better just to give just to put it all out there because then. Because if you don't, I just find from my own experience, people keep asking questions about something that you haven't mentioned. So I think it's just better to put it all out there and just, yeah, and then you won't get asked so many questions. You know, it's 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 there for all to see, you know, it's all there, you know. Yeah, for sure. And I, I find the same too. I think it's important to be clear, but then there's always that you can never please everyone and you'll always get a million comments saying what you didn't say, how you said something wrong. So I think it's part of what we do is you just have to accept there's always going to be those people. Uh, but I think we're going to cover a lot tonight. There's a lot that we can talk about on this one. And really what we're talking about is the prelude to the counterculture. Or we could even say, and you called it the underground, but we could even say that this was the setup for it. Uh, and we're going to talk specifically about the Bloomsbury set. But before we get into the subject, how would you just briefly describe the Bloomsbury set? Who were they? What were they about? And what time period are we talking we're talking time period, I would say, from the beginning of the 20th century. So we're talking very, very late 1800s. We're talking 1890s. But really, if you really want to be quite exact about it, I would say 1900s, like very early 1900s to about, well, I don't know, 1940s, maybe. Um, it was a very first generational thing. There were offspring from the original Bloomsbury groupers from the 1900s but they've kind of tapered off as it, it never continued if you like not not as a you know a, a going concern if you like it was just a group of people that were around in their younger years uh in the early 1900s and yeah they were around and they were active until they they passed away you know some of them lived on until the 50s some of them the 1960s but they tapered off you know they got older they passed away and they gradually the group got smaller and smaller but there wasn't really a continuation of it in any kind of recognizable shape um when i was i didn't set out to look at the bloomsbury group it was never a mission as it were i mean my main mission has always been to look at the 1960s counterculture of london um i don't know if we got into this before 
uh, in the previous podcast, I can't remember, but um, my main influence, my main inspiration for looking at the 1960s counterculture movement of London, the underground movement, if you like, um, was very much, a lot of it was was inspired by the work of Dave McGowan, David McGowan, the author of the book about Laurel Canyon, um, which when basically what he did in this book, he, he wrote a book about the Laurel Canyon area, which is in LA of, and this, he was looking specifically at the 1960s, although he did in his book, he does go off and look at the seventies and a little bit of the eighties as well, but predominantly it's about the 1960s. And his argument was in this book basically was that um, many, if not most, if not all, the so-called anti-establishment stick it to the man music stars uh, of the 1960s, the so-called countercultural heroes of the late 60s, such as Jim Morrison, the Mamas and the Pappas, um, all of those kind of bands, all those kind of artists, Crosby, Stills, Nash, you know, all of those kind of bands were basically were putting on an act. Basically, they were pretending to be anti-establishment, but they weren't really. And what Dave McGowan did was look at their backgrounds uh, as evidence of this. Um, certainly, if you look at the backgrounds of a lot of these um, music artists that were seemingly looking as though they were sticking it to the man, they were they were there with the youngsters of the time protesting and supporting the end of the Vietnam War. When you actually look at their backgrounds, they come from quote unquote elite backgrounds or backgrounds in military intelligence and so on. For example, if you look at Jim Morrison, um, which is the, the best example you can give of all of those music stars that Dave McGowan looked at in terms of their, their background. If you look at Jim Morrison, his father was none other than, I think his name was George Stephen Morrison. Don't quote me on that, but certainly his father was a top naval figure and he was in charge um, to all intents and purposes um, at the time that the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident occurred. And anyone who knows about the Gulf of Tonkin knows that it was a false flag event, basically, that took place in the South China Seas, was it, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, in 1965 or 66 or 64, some sometime around then. Um, and basically, this was a false flag event that essentially began the escalation of the Vietnam War, began, it was used as an excuse by the US politicians at the time to ramp up the war in Vietnam by sending more troops over. They used the Gulf of Tonkin false flag incident as justification to say to the Congress, the US Congress, we need to send more troops in. And that was what escalated the Vietnam War. So this is, this is Jim Morrison's father, who was mixed into that, who was enmeshed in that false flag event. Um, Non-event, you could say. Uh, and then again, you look at the, the background of David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, Nash. Um, he has, uh, um, I, I won't go into the, the, the full, the, 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 just the list is endless, basically. Frank Zappa, I mean, Dave, David Crosby, if you look at his, his background, there's like, um, Freemasons, there's, there's people going back to, you know, going back, um, decades and decades to the very, um, uh, creation of what we now call the United States of America. He's related to these people that, that were there at that time. Um, and Frank Zappa, he grew up on Edgewood Arsenal, um, where, you know, the, the chemical warfare, um, center. He, his father worked there and he actually lived on, on the actual, on the actual property as a child he grew up there frank zapper actually grew up uh, there while his father worked there and the list just keeps going on and on and on you look at many of these music artists and the thing is dave mcgowan's argument is why is it that all these music artists moved to laurel canyon because if you look at laurel canyon in the 1960s so dave mcgowan argues when these artists were moving there don't forget these music artists when they were moving there to live there and all congregated in this one area of Laurel Canyon. These, these were music artists who were still yet to be known. They weren't, they didn't have music contracts. They weren't famous. They didn't have hits in the charts. Uh, they were largely unknown. Um, so, and the thing is, like Dave McGowan argues, 
there was no music scene in Laurel Canyon. There was no record companies. There was no club scene. There was nowhere for these artists to play in order for them to be discovered by A&R men or record company people. There was There was no reason why they should go there. If they're looking to become famous, why are they going to this place? Um, so, but the, they, 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 there you go. They all did. Most of them did. They all congregated in this place. There was no music scene whatsoever. And if you look at Laurel Canyon, what was there was uh, an area called Lookout Mountain. Um, and Dave McGowan goes into this. There was a film studio in Laurel Canyon. And I think it was at Lookout Mountain, if I'm not mistaken. Um, where uh, propaganda films were made by the, the military and the intelligence services and so on and so on and so on. So inspired by this, partly inspired by this, the, this, this kind of landmark work of Dave McGowan's, I began to look at the London counterculture scene, uh, the underground scene of London. Um, because my way of thinking is if if this was going on, if, if Dave McGowan was right and this was going on in America, then it had to have been going on in Britain as well, because Britain is central to the whole. In order for the, the, the counterculture movement, that so-called second summer of love that took place in L.A. in America in 1967, in order for that to be as popular as it was in the so-called Western world, you needed Britain's help for that to be as popular as it became. That's my argument. Um, without Britain, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. Um, and, and the main reason for that is because you needed somebody as strong as the Beatles, for example, to help make that popular, to make that movement popular. Um, because I don't think there's any argument about the fact that the Beatles were the most popular band of the 1960s, the most influential band of the 1960s and beyond, you might argue as well. And you needed a band like that to be able to carry the flag for the countercultural movement, for this movement that that carried along with it promotion of LSD uh, and, and and also, you know, the ideals of, of hippiedom, if you like. And the Beatles did that. I mean, if you look at the album Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1967, that is nicknamed, that is dubbed the soundtrack to the summer of love of 1967 and the Beatles were huge. They were a huge band. And if you had their influence, their crowd pulling influence, that huge, immense influence, you would be able to carry anything on along with that influence. So to have them on board, which the countercultural movement did was, was, was integral to the popularity of the 60s so-called counterculture movement of America and also uh, Britain as well. Um, you, you could take this further. You could say, well, the term psychedelic, it's a British term. It was, it was um, thought up by Humphrey Osmond, who was a doctor who, who looked into psychedelics. He, he came up with the term psychod psychedelia, psychedelic. It's, it comes from a British person. Um, the man who turned on Timothy Leary to LSD was Michael Hollingshead, who was British. Um, and we could, we could talk about Michael Hollingshead for hours, uh, but I won't do that. <laughs> that, that. That, that could make a, a podcast all of its own. He was, um, uh, um, he's, he's, he's sometimes dubbed the kind of the father of LSD, the godfather of LSD, but he was the guy who actually introduced LSD to Timothy Leary. Uh, British, British-born guy. Um, he used to work, he used to run the World Psychedelic Centre from a flat in London uh, in 1965-66 kind of time, um, with the blessing of Leary and basically Michael Hollingshead's mission, as it was. Um, and he said this himself, I think. Very mysterious man. There's not a lot known about him. Um, there's a bit, it's a bit known about him, but he's quite an, uh, uh, an enigmatic figure. You know, he's quite mysterious. Um, but yeah, his mission, and he said, he said this himself was to turn on, turn on Britain, you know, just to, to, to turn on everybody to LSD. And he, he tried to do this from this flat in London, uh, which he nicknames the World Psychedelic Center, the, uh, the WPC. And lots of music artists, it said, would go to this flat, like Donovan, Paul McCartney is said to have gone there as well. So he was very influential and he had the blessing of Timothy Leary. Um, when, when Michael Hollingshead was in America, uh, Leary said to Hollingshead, you've got my blessing to go 
to Britain and to turn everyone else to turn everybody on in Britain like I'm doing over here in the States. So basically he was like his envoy. He was like Leary's envoy, if you like. There's even rumours that they were going to concerts and like handing out these LSD tabs like sweets to kids. There was people actually there in the crowd giving out the LSD. And we know this was around the time of the MKUltra experiments too, or just after they'd really done a lot of research there. So if you was going to try and change a culture and kind of psychedelically, oh well, psychologically, uh, alter the states of people and try and I don't know maybe have a mass mind control that that's what you do you would have been you would have been doing that and I've heard lots of stories about that I just wanted to back up a step before we leave it though Matt when you mentioned about how well, how should we call them let's say intelligence or you could say a cabal is using these musicians and artists potentially to forward an agenda I have researched this myself and it seems to me like they still do this today and it makes complete sense that if you want to control a whole culture, you want the families that you trust or families that are connected to the upper echelons at some level. So it's not because otherwise we'll go into corrals that they can't control. So they always try and have, well, if they're going to have rock music, let's have people in that rock sphere that we can control. Uh, and it still goes on to this day. And I was just researching literally just today about a band. And um, do you remember the band called The Strokes, Matt? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting backgrounds, yeah. So his father, yeah. the father of the um, lead singer, he had elite model management, which is this big modeling agency that had offices in Miami, uh, New York, Los Angeles. And we know that the modeling circuit was notorious for trafficking children to uh, elite pedophiles. Uh, and this guy actually had an affair with a 15-year-old himself. That's documented. He married a 17-year-old. There was lots of people who worked for that company who had all kinds of allegations made. So he was certainly in the establishment. But then guess what? I looked at a, a more recent band, which is uh, Mumford & Sons. Now listen to this. The lead singer of Mumford & Sons, very popular band, head of an international evangelical church. Yeah. Interesting. Lead guitarist of Mumford & Sons. Father, Sir Paul Marshall, a British tycoon and co-founder of the Marshall Waste Hedge Fund, which started with half of the funds coming from Mr. George Soros. He also comes from the Sabina de Balcony family, a prominent European Jewish family. Now, I would say to listeners, look into the past and the families of all of these big artists, all of these people that you think are part of this alternative scene. And Matt, it comes up time and time again. There's so many links to the establishment. So I, I didn't want to leave without mentioning that because every time I look into these people, even music that I like might I add, all of a sudden I think, wait a minute, that his father was a Serb, he was working with Soros, crazy, crazy links. It's never, it's never rags to riches, is it? Quote, no, unquote. it's not. It's never, it's never rags to riches, is it? Never. Um, well, not never, but a lot of the times when you, and, and, and oh, it's just, it, it's just ridiculous. Oh my goodness. And if it is, they get co-opted very quickly. That's what you find is if it, if they are kind of come, I mean, Lady Gaga, she's another one. I looked into her family. Her father was a very prominent restaurateur. And guess what, Matt? He still runs a restaurant. Now his daughter, is worth hundreds of millions now. His other daughter runs a modeling agency, and yet he still runs a restaurant. It just doesn't strike me as normal, so I'm guessing he's a part of something. <laughs> I don't know what, but all of these people are shady as hell. Uh, but let's get back on track. Let's go to the Bloomsbury set then, because I think these were a forerunner for many of the things that became that we see today en masse. I mean, everything that was happening within the Bloomsbury set, the promiscuity, the the the, the far leftism, the anti-war sentiment, all of these ideas that today have exploded in society, they were actually fermenting it within them. So what made you focus on them? Was it, was it a natural progression from looking at the 60s stuff? Like, now I need to go further back into it. Well, like I said before, I, I never set out to do it. It was, it was never a mission as such. Um you know, if you if you look at the 60s so-called underground movement, if you look at a lot of this, uh, having looked at Dave McGowan's work, I thought to myself, well, if it was going on, as I said before, if it was going on in the US, it must have been, been going on in the UK. So I started to look at some of the backgrounds of the movers and the shakers of the counterculture scene, the London scene. And that's what my main focus of research is on. It's not on America. It's on London. It's on Britain. Um, because I think it is important. If it was going on in America, it must have been going, going on in the UK. So I, I began to look at that initially back in 
2016, I think it was. And I just noticed that a lot of these movers and shakers, when I looked at their, um, the people that were responsible for making this happen in London in the sixties, a lot of their backgrounds were indeed in military or intelligence or so-called elite backgrounds. So yeah. Um, so with regards to Bloomsbury, I did notice uh, when I began to look into Bloomsbury, I noticed that I began to see connections between these so-called movers and shakers of the sixties to Bloomsbury. And that I never, that was never my intention. I never, I never, I never expected that to be the case when I began looking into Bloomsbury. I never thought that was going to, I thought it might happen, but not to the extent that I discovered it did. If you watch this video, this Bloomsbury video that I've got on Conspiro TV, as you say, this three hour video, you'll see the connections. And who were they, Matt? Shall we give a rundown of some of these names of the people that were there, just to give listeners an idea? We won't be able to do like a deep dive on all of them, but we'll certainly pick some out. But uh, it was really like a list, I would say, is people who were heavily involved in the creation of culture. So it was people, uh, there was artists, there was writers, very prominent ones, people who were going to be involved in those scenes and who would in turn affect the direction of culture the direction of travel so there was even book publishers and then there was some really interesting ones as well which i'd love to get into a bit later on like john maynard Keynes, one of the most important figures in monetary history ever you know john i mean without john maynard Keynes, we wouldn't have the system we've got today he was influential in the imf so we'll go into him for sure very interesting character so it was a real mix of people but certainly it was heavy in terms of novelists writers and painters wasn't it yeah, he he's like the odd one out kind of thing. Maybe he's not, but it's on on when you look at it on face value, he seems like he's the sort. He's like the the thumb sticking out, you know, the sore thumb sticking out. And uh, I think perhaps the best known person in that Bloomsbury group was Virginia Woolf, the novelist Virginia Woolf, arguably perhaps the best known person in that group. Um, and basically, they the the reason that they're called the Bloomsbury Group is because they used to meet in bloomsbury at number 46 gordon square in bloomsbury that's one of the addresses they used to initially used to meet at, and that's where virginia wolf lived with her husband leonard wolf who's also got very interesting connections he was another bloomsbury bloomsbury grouper i think he was a publisher um a book publisher and yeah they the the that's the reason they called the bloomsbury group is because i think it's because they used to meet in bloomsbury a, a, a part of london and I might be wrong, but I, I'm not I'm not an expert on the Bloomsbury group. I haven't spent years and years and years looking into them. But certainly from the, the time that I have spent looking into them, according to other authors and commentators who have spent a lot of years looking into them, they're often regarded as like very permissive, like they were seen like a, as a precursor to the 1960s. So here we have a group of people. In the early 1900s, from the 1900s, like 1900-ish onwards to the about to about the 1940s, who they were free thinkers and they were very permissive, sexually permissive. And when these historians that have looked into the Bloomsbury Group look at the Bloomsbury Group, it's very much from a mainstream perspective. So they look at the Bloomsbury Group and say, "Oh, look, they they were like a precursor to the 1960s." They'll say. But they regard that as being an accident, just just one of those things. But I looked at them and I I just thought, what if it wasn't an accident? What if it was a dry run for what was to come in the 1960s? And if it was a dry run, what is their background? What is the background of this so-called Bloomsbury group? Because the Bloomsbury group were sexually permissive. So that was certainly something that occurred in the 1960s. That was something that was pushed, made to happen. Uh, in society we have you know the 1960s was when you know it was sexual freedom go you know trying to you know that the family unit wasn't as important anymore that's certainly how culture was being pushed at the time um so there was a lot of that with the bloomsbury group also with regards to the bloomsbury group is they were rebelling against their parents generation and again, this is very much 1960s thinking or how the culture uh, society shifters and shapers were, were looking to shape 1960s culture. Whether that was what people, the ordinary man and woman on the street was thinking, I don't know, because I didn't live through the 60s. So I don't know. But certainly from the perspective of the culture movers and shakers, the social 
um, manipulators of the 60s, if you look at the media, music, movies, all that kind of thing, certainly there was this feeling that, 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 that there was, a the family unit was was uncool man you know it was all about sexual permissiveness and going with different partners and all that kind of thing and certainly if you look at the bloomsbury group you can see that going on back there the bloomsbury group they were rebelling against the victorian um traditions of their parents generation um against the stuffiness the stuffy victorian attitudes um certainly uh, i've read accounts from people who were young in the 60s who were in their late teens and early 20s and what and what they said is is they were rebelling against their parents generation um because their parents were young during the second world war and in a lot of ways they blamed their parents for the second world war it was like how can you know it's that you know people who lived it who were young in the 60s were thinking how on earth could our parents generation allow a world war to take place you know what sort of a, a generation is this that can allow that to happen so there was a lot of that going on as well there was a lot of resentment so you do see parallels uh in that regard they, they seem to have perfected that with the germans as well i know there was a lot of that going into world war ii when you had like the hitler youth and um kind of what it was called the females the the girls uh, i think they were called the iron maidens where they had you know, they all rebelled against their parents and they all blamed them for the hyperinflation. They blamed them for World War One, And they said, we're going to make everything better. And it was this kind of shift in human psyche where no longer was the family unit important. Parents were something to be hated. And the new generation from that point on, and it happened in the West too, was always about destroying the old and saying, we know how it should be. We are the ones who are going to reinvent history but before that it was always a case of you were brought up to respect your parents and you followed in their traditions you followed in their uh, culture and ethos but i think they perfected it with the nazis actually this kind of thing and then it seemed to they seem to have learned a lot from that and we spoke in the first interview that we did about theodore dorno and how he learned a lot from how the nazis programmed people on mass and he took that across to the beatles uh so i just wanted to throw that in because that, that's something i've noticed from history it seemed like this part, what we're talking about now with the Bloomsbury set and just this time period in hi in history in general, the 1910, 1920, 1930 period, they were really perfecting the art form of mass mind control. And then in the 60s, they unleashed it on mass. But that's why I think this Bloomsbury part is so important, because I think you're right. I think it was a driver in my it, when I look at these names. I mean, look at the people who were a part of this Virginia Woolf. One of the greatest no novelists of the 20th century, apparently. Clive Bell, art critic, early champion of modern art. Now, modern art, my wife's an artist, and she said modern art came along and destroyed art. You know, modern art was definitely something that the deep state were looking to do to take away, take us away from beauty. So he was, he was influential on that. Julian Bell, Cambridge student. Uh, he was repu reputed to be the lover of a spy, MI5. Uh, Dora Carrington, artist and painter. Who else did we have? Rosamund Lehman, novelist. And she wrote a lot of novels about lesbian love, uh, marriages breaking up, backstreet abortions, apparently. There's so many of them. Art critics, people who run bookstores. Wogan Phillips, he was, his dad was Lord Milford and he joined the Communist Party and became the first communist ever to sit in the House of Lords. Uh, we've already mentioned, um, Keynes. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is the most important. Uh, most important economist of all time, I would say, for the contribution, the terrible contribution he made. And there's so many others that were around them. wasn't wasn't the matter. It wasn't just these people we're speaking of. They had like like tentacles into all of these different uh, cultural movements, and were bringing people into their fold, into these parties, and then they was all having sex with each other. I mean, when you look at the sexual web that was created, it was men sleeping with men sleeping with women, love triangles, love I don't know parallelograms. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can get into a little bit of that. I mean, you see, the, the thing is with the Bloomsbury Group, when I began to look into them and I was picking up on these names that you mentioned, well, basically, even before I got to the names, when I found out from these various commentators that they were kind of sexually permissive, the Bloomsbury Group was sexually permissive, they were quote-unquote free thinkers, kind of like a precursor to the 60s, that got my, you know, that got my senses going. I thought, okay, that's interesting. Now, if it had just been that, and if I'd have looked into their backgrounds, all the various members, and and I, and I wouldn't have found anything, I, th I would have thought to myself, okay, so it's just coincidence kind of thing. But when you look into their backgrounds of all these, the, the, the groupers, the Bloomsbury groupers, a lot of the members in this 
so-called group, um, you see nefarious connections, you see connections to organizations and all of that, which connect to things that are very, very suspicious, social engineering type organizations. And at that point, when I saw all that, I thought, no, I have to keep going with this. And that's what resulted in the video. Yeah, like you say, you, you've mentioned many of them already. Uh, other Bloomsbury Group members, like you say, there's Virginia Woolf. Uh, you've you've um, mentioned Roger Fry. There's E.M. Forster, the novelist. Uh, I've got a list of some of his books here because uh, I think uh, a lot of people will have heard of his books, to put it mildly. A Room with a View was one of his books. Howard's End, A Passage to India. Uh, there was also uh, uh, D- David Garnett, the writer, Duncan Grant, uh, also Lytton Strachey, uh, who was an English writer, and uh, also uh, John Maynard Keynes as well. Um, and Roger Fry, actually, I, I know we talked about this in the previous podcast that we did together when I guested on, on a previous one, that I argued that the avant-garde movement was a was used by the CIA during the 1950s um, to as, a, as part of a cultural Cold War, if you like, against Russia, uh, or, or against the USSR, or so the official accounts will tell us whether that was what was actually going on. I think it was actually probably a cultural cold war against the uh, against America and Britain, actually using bands like the Beatles and counterculture musicians and, and movers and shakers to, because the avant-garde movement was very much the foundation stone of the counterculture movement. Without the avant-garde, I would argue that the counterculture movement of late 60s London, I don't know about America, but London wouldn't have been, nowhere near as strong so we've talked about that in a previous edition um in the last the last time i spoke with you um but yeah uh, roger fry i just wanted to mention that roger fry um one of the bloomsbury groupers uh the painter and art critic roger fry he uh, he um established what was called the omega workshops in um 1913 and i've got a quote here from a, a website um the workshops employed some of the most radical avant-garde artists of the day with Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant as co-directors. Vanessa Bell is Virginia Woolf's sister and she is also or was also a Bloomsbury grouper. So you've got them pushing the avant-garde there in in the 1910s that early on. So a few decades before the CIA got its hands on it. Okay I'll get into I've got a list here and I have to read it from the list. I can't do it from memory because um, <laughs> this sexual permissiveness, this sleeping around with each other um, amongst the Bloomsbury group is, is so in, it's, it's like a spider's web and I can't do it from memory because they were just all hopping into bed with each other. Yeah, just before you go into it, Matt, let's just preface it by saying, remember everyone, that this was when homosexuality was still illegal. Uh, it was still a Christian culture, heavily, heavily influenced culture by Christian values. So people were still going to church. This is the early 10 of the century, the early 1900s. So just imagine that. And now Matt's going to tell you what was actually happening behind closed doors with this group, the Bloomsbury set. And it's even stronger than that, Mike, because if, if homosexuality, which was legalized in 1967 in, in England, um, if you were caught Back in the 1900s, even in the 1960s, before it was legalized, if you were found to be a homosexual man, you, you, you face the danger of losing your job, your career, your family might turn their back on you um, and you, you could go to jail. You'd be prosecuted, charged, go to jail. Um, so, OK, so just to point out that this Gordon Square in Bloomsbury, this part of London, uh, this address in Bloomsbury, um, London, number 46 Gordon Square, as I said earlier, is where the Bloomsbury groupers initially began to meet. Um, but there were other addresses in Bloomsbury where the Bloomsbury groupers lived. And this is quite odd in itself. This, like, And I've been there. I, I, obviously, I've been there because I've made a, a, a video tour of it. But there's a long row of houses, which is Gordon Square, um, Bloomsbury. And, and in the middle of that square, you've got a park the garden square, if you like, and then uh, surrounding it. Uh, so you've got the park in the middle and surrounding it, you've got this row of houses and that's Gordon Square. So it wasn't just number 46 Gordon Square where Virginia Woolf lived with her husband and Vanessa, her sister, lived with them as well. You also had number 51 Gordon Square, which is where Lytton Strachey lived, the, the, the writer, another Bloomsbury group. And then you had number 37 um, Bloomsbury Square, uh, number 50 uh, Bloomsbury Square, uh, Bloomsbury Square, sorry, Gordon Square. So you had 
yeah, sorry, it's not Bloomsbury Square, it's Gordon Square. So it wasn't only number 46, it was number 51, number 50, and number 37. So you had all these Bloomsbury groupers living on this on this row. So maybe one of the reasons they were doing that wasn't only because they were meeting, basically these Bloomsbury group meetings that they used to have, so they tell us, uh, which initially began at number 46, Gordon Square, was initially a place where they would meet regularly to talk about art, to debate, to talk about, you know, uh, to engage in artistic um, activities, if you like. But it would appear that they're also getting up to a lot of orgy, (laughs) a lot of orgies, um, sleeping around with each other. Uh, And I think that's probably one of the reasons maybe why they all like lived on Gordon Square in Bloomsbury, maybe so they could like just they wouldn't have too far to go if they were feeling a bit frisky. Um, one author has called this the Bloomsbury loving merry-go-round. So here we go. Let's hop on the merry-go-round. So, okay. So we've got Vanessa, Virginia's sister. She lived at number 46 Gordon square with her sister. Um, um, uh, she lived with her sister, Virginia, uh, Virginia Wolf and her husband, Virginia's husband, Leonard. Uh, and then Vanessa, she married fellow Bloomsbury Group member and writer Clive Bell, who we've mentioned. They married in 1907. And after they got married, Virginia and Leonard moved out. Uh, and Vanessa and Clive uh, remained living there for another few years, up until about 1916. Uh, they had two sons together, Julian and Quentin. Uh, and then their marriage fell apart. Uh, and then Vanessa began a brief affair with um, earlier mentioned Bloomsbury Group member Roger Fry. And then she went into a relationship with another Bloomsbury group member, uh, Duncan Grant, who we've also mentioned, with whom she had a child with. And during all this time, she and Clive stayed married. It was a, a kind of an open thing. Um, but it's not like he wasn't up to anything. Uh, apparently, so I'm led to understand he went on to have many mistresses uh, as well. Um, and he lived at number 46 and then he then moved out. He was living at 46 gordon square with his wife and then he moved out and he went on to live at number 50 and then um vanessa um his wife moved out with duncan grant and they lived at number 37 um gordon square uh and then we move on to uh john maynard keynes who as you say there's a really important part of that one in that the the daughter that she had so vanessa bell had a daughter with duncan grant however the daughter was brought up to believe that Clive Bell was her father, and she didn't find out until she was older. She ended up marrying a man called David Garnett, who was the gay lover of her real father, Duncan Grant. So, so that just tells listeners how messed up this was. The, the, how messed up this is. The daughter was told her father was Clive Bell. It was actually Duncan Grant. She ended up marrying the gay lover of Duncan Grant, who was her father. So that's just how messy that is. I'll hand it back to you, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is actually more messed up than the 60s ever was. It, however, you know, uh, however sexually permissive the 60s might have got with all the acid being taken and the joint smoking and, and the revelry and the, and all of that. I don't even, I don't even think it got this. Like, I think even stoned hippies from the 60s would look back on this and think and be shocked, you know, <laughs> even by their standards, you know. So, okay. So we've got John Maynard Keynes, who, as we've already said, he's a bit of a sore thumb in this. It, or it would appear. Um, but then again, when you look at when you actually look at the backgrounds of some of the Bloomsbury groupers, apart from John Maynard Keynes, then you actually maybe might think to yourself, well, actually, no, they're all very similar because they they have these connections to all these nefarious organisations. Maybe they're not. Maybe John Maynard Keynes and, you know, isn't the sore thumb, isn't a sore thumb because what you think to yourself, why is this economist you know, mixing? Why is he a, why is this economist who helped to found the IMF? Um, and the World Bank, which he did, he helped to found those. Why is he mixed up with all of these, you know, like pre- proto hippies? You know, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, there is something that connects to my guess is that they all came pretty much from very elite backgrounds. And a lot of them went to Cambridge, didn't they? They all seem to have come from, or the majority of them came from Cambridge University. So that was the links that I could find. But even then, I, it still is very bizarre that this guy was going around and basically spending all of his time with the leading central bankers was hanging around with the artists and the hippies and then sleeping with them all. 
Uh, and I just wondered if he was maybe some, I think there's more to that, but I couldn't get there. Like, was he, was he the puppet master? Cause he was older than them as well, I think. So what, did he have an extra role there? I'm not sure, but it, it does stand out. And I think we'll probably spend a bit more time on him later on. Cause he, he to me is a key character in this. There, there is one, there is one, uh, kind of link, maybe an ideological link, um, that kind of connects them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And that's eugenics. There's a lot of supporters of eugenics when you get look into the Bloomsbury group, um, which might you might think is rather odd, uh, maybe. Um, but certainly Cambridge University is another um, connection. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's thanks to Cambridge University that the Bloomsbury group, as we call it, actually came into being. A lot of the people that started this Bloomsbury group or who were in it initially when it began in Gordon Square, Lon- uh, London, Bloomsbury, um, were were from Cambridge. Actually, the roots of it were from Cambridge University. The, the the roots, the ideas of it, started there. There was a secret society actually at, at Cambridge that goes back hundreds of the, years the called the Cambridge Apostles. Apostles. Yeah. That's the one. And they were all, and it was the it was a similar setup in that they met they met once a week. They debated, they discussed, and even that. When you look into this secret society, it sounds very subversive for the time period. They called themselves the Apostles. There was 12 founding members, which is where the name come from. They had an, a chest that they called the Ark, and it was filled with all of their secret notes and handwriting. The past members were all very significant people again, so it was like this collection of elites. Yeah. They would vet new members and call them embryos. <laughs> so, they, uh, you know, so the, it's very subversive, and it seems like maybe they left Cambridge having been a part of that group and started it outside of Cambridge and I would guess that intelligence for it were at least involved they must have known these groups were going on and you know surely they're the Matt if you was intelligence you would want to be accessing these groups these are the movers and shakers the future thought leaders so I would guess that intelligence were all over these people yeah this is perhaps for another podcast but I have looked a little bit into this if you look at the Cambridge apostles a lot of the so-called Cambridge spies the Cambridge Five. You've heard of the Cambridge Five, haven't you? The Anthony Blunt, Guy Burgess. Were these the ones that the Soviets were? That they were involved with the Soviets. Yeah, they were spying for the KGB during the 1940s, 50s, and some of them were outed. Uh, Anthony Blunt uh, um, was one of them, uh, and and the apostles have links to this. This links back to Cambridge University, hence why they're called the Cambridge Spies. Anthony Blunt was one of those. He was actually the Queen's art curator, Queen Elizabeth II's art curator, and he was also art curator to her father, the King. Um, And then when he passed away, he carried on. I think he was also, yeah, I think he was also the King's art curator. Um, And yeah, he he um he he went to the he, he he was forced to go to the police in the 1960s because it was all this this secretive spy ring these cambridge spies um it was starting to break down it was starting to get found out so anthony blunt went to the it was went to the police and he was questioned and he broke a deal basically and he 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 let them uh, he informed he was he, he became, basically became an informant and they broke a deal where he wouldn't be prosecuted. And this came out in 1979, 1980, that Anthony Blunt was actually part of this Cambridge spy ring. It came out in the mainstream media. You can actually find YouTube footage of the news reports on BBC News uh, of it coming out. Um, But oddly enough, I think it was in 1962 that he came clean about it. But he carried on as art curator for the Queen. He actually carried on. Well, that's very interesting because that suggests to me that, I mean, I've got my own thoughts on what happened in Russia with the revolution. And I think it was actually a part of this whole narrative of trying to remake society. So, and here's a very interesting thing that I found researching this show with you. I was looking at prominent people who lived in Bloomsbury and one of them was Vladimir Lenin. He he actually lived in Bloomsbury for a time. Now, as we're going to part two, we're going to talk about some of the buildings that are in bloomsbury and one of them that you point out in your talk is that's where the tavistock clinic started as well yeah yeah so so it seems to me like there's something was happening in bloomsbury for sure it was a part of this transformation of society 
uh, and you've picked up on many of the pieces and threads. So, so go back ahead, Matt, Matt, with what you were saying about these people, what they were doing there, the promiscuity. Uh, and also maybe we could talk a little bit about the circles that they were moving in, because it wasn't just an insular group. They were actually, you know, they were actually influential in art. I mean, I heard that, they, that, that Picasso was hanging out with them. All kinds of people were with them. Yeah, I haven't got too deeply into that side of it. Um, to be honest with you, with the artistic side of it, because I got so wrapped up in the, their connections with, with regards to nefarious organisations. and Well, I think that's the more interesting part, so, so let's stick with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I th- yeah, I, I think the artistry side, the art side of it is interesting as well, but I just never got the time to go that f- further into it. Um, I, I had to go on to other areas of research. I thought, I've got enough for now, I thought to myself, after I'd done the video, I thought, I've got enough for now. I need to get back to the 1960s now. Otherwise, if I concentrate on the Bloomsbury group too much, it's going to, I'm just going to keep going and, and the, the, the tunnel's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm just going and I'm going to forget about the 1960s. So I had to find a point where I thought to myself, no, I've got to stop now. I might return to it at some point, And I think I will actually, um, because I just keep. I think it's important just for listeners to understand that these, these were, this was not just a group of, and nobodies they influenced everything from literature to modern art fashion everything they were involved in all the circles and they were the ones that were actually influential in getting out new material in terms of publishing houses i mean in bloomsbury there was the bloomsbury publishing house there was faber and faber that was there there was harper's so so these people were not nobodies they were having a tangible effect on the course of history so i think it's just important to understand that and also this move away from Christian values and towards this more subversive one, and also these new ideologies that were emerging. Feminism, for example, these were key proponents in feminism. Yeah, Virginia Woolf was, was if I'm not mistaken, she was very much um, involved in all of that as well. Yeah, this is all. This is really important what you're saying, and it's valuable. It's really valuable that you're putting this in as a, as an underlining factor. Um, with regards to Maynard Keynes and and his um, <laughs> um, yeah his his sexual activities, um, he, he was he was a homosexual man, but he got married in 1925 to a Russian-born ballerina. Her name was uh, Lydia Lobakova, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, um, whilst he was in Cambridge, um, he had a, an affair with Daniel Macmillan, the brother of um, then British Prime Minister to be. In the 1950s and early 60s, uh, Harold Macmillan from Daniel Macmillan. Um, uh, well, <laughs> where do I start? Within the Bloomsbury circle. I mean, according to his memoirs, I've got some quotes here from his memoirs um, where he lists some of his sexual encounters. Uh, and I'm, I've got a few here I've, I've typed out on, on a bit of paper. It says, uh, for example, he was involved with a stable boy in Park Lane, London, a lift boy of Vauxhall, uh, London, a Jew boy, quote unquote, and a 16 year old. Um, and apparently he was also within the Bloomsbury group circle. He was also sexually involved with Lytton Strachey, who I mentioned earlier, the writer Lytton Strachey, also Lytton's brother, James. Um, but it's claimed, however, that the great male love, quote unquote, uh, Keynes is great male. And don't forget, he's married. He's, uh, Keynes is married to this Russian-born ballerina, but it's claimed that his great male love, the love of his life, was Duncan Grant, who was the guy who was involved with Virginia Woolf's sister, very much involved with it. So it, it, we've got this thing going on, this like uh, like I said earlier, this merry-go-round. Um, and um, yeah, Keynes and Duncan Grant were lovers. And also Duncan Grant, it's claimed, was also uh, sexually involved for a bit with Lytton Strachey, who was his cousin. So there's, you know, that's, 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 um, yeah. So that's the merry-go-round, basically. I've got a quote here from Virginia Woolf from her memoirs, um, which I'll just read to you. Just to give you, it, it, it kind of like gives you it in a nutshell, basically, what we've been talking about with, with regards to this promiscuity, um, which at the time was just quite revolutionary. Um, so this is what she states in her memoirs, Moments of Being. She says, so there was nothing that one could not say, nothing that one could not do at 46 Gordon Square. It was, I think, a great advance in civilization. It may be true that the loves of buggers are not, at least if one is of the other persuasion, of enthralling or paramount importance. But the fact that they could be mentioned openly leads to the fact no one minds if they are practiced privately. Thus, many customs and beliefs were revised. Indeed, the future of Bloomsbury was to prove that many variations can be played on the theme of sex. So that's 
the very words of Virginia Woolf herself. And look where we are today, Matt. A hundred years later, we're at the kind of really pointy end of that ideology, which is today it's like gender roles have just gone out the window. Anyone can be anything. And funnily enough, actually, when I was researching this episode, I was looking into one of the members and I we looked at a picture yeah. of her, didn't yeah, yeah. we? Or we say her. But I shared this with Matt just before today's episode. It was one of the members of the Bloomsbury group called Vita Sackville West. And she became Hogarth Press's best-selling author. Now, I had a look at her, Matt, and, I, and it just so happened I saw a photograph of her. And I immediately said, that's a man. Vita Sackville West. Listeners, just Google her. Look at her Wikipedia page. 100% this was a man. And I put it to you that they maybe would have had a man dressed as a woman as part of this subversion tactics. And uh, Matt, there is just no way that this is a woman. And yet apparently she was married and she was a part of the Bloomsbury set. I don't know. Is this a secret? What do you think? Do you think that what do you <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying this facetiously. I genuinely think it was a, it was a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It looks like a man to me. Yeah. I, I will, I'm not going to categorically say, yes, it's a man, um, but I'm tempted to because it really, really looks like a man. It's the eyes. It's, 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 well, there's more, it's more than just the eyes. It's, there's, you know, the bone structure and everything is quite telling, I suppose you could say, but it's the eyes that I don't, I, I looked at straight away. It's just, it's a, it just looks like a man. It looks a little bit like Oscar Wilde. Yeah, it does actually. It does. Very strong jawline. Um, in fact, if you've ever looked at the Princess of Greece, there's a famous Princess of Greece who also is rumoured to have been a male. And, you know, listen, there's many reasons why this could be. A lot of these families were inbred. So they were having uh, all kinds of deformities. Maybe they had asexual children. We don't know. But, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past them to try and pass off a man as a female as part of this subversion. So that's just something I want to put out there. But before we get to the end of part one, Matt, I just want to get your kind of categoric statement on what was going on with the Bloomsbury group, because in part two, we're going to go much deeper into this one. But for the end of part one, what was they doing? What was the role of them and how important were they in taking us to this cultural debasement that really picked up steam in the 1960s and 70s? I don't know how important they were. I've got no real proof. But as I said earlier, the mainstream historians will say to you that the Bloomsbury group were very much a precursor to the 60s sexual permissiveness and the free thinking and the rebelliousness against the older generation and the older value system, the traditional values. They had that kind of in common. The Bloomsbury group had that in common with the 60s. Um, but as I say, the, you know, the, the mainstream historians look at that as a coincidence um, I'm just putting forward the possibility that that might have not been a coincidence. It might have been, as we said earlier, a dry run, a practice run. Um, because I don't think at, because at, the, because the difference between the Bloomsbury group, and I might be wrong, but I'm just, this is how I see it at the moment. My, my mind changes by the day. Um, the Bloomsbury group was like the sixties, but in a microcosm. Do you know what I mean? It was like encased within this Bloomsbury group, this, small collective of people in this part of london who released published books and 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 uh, made and there was paintings and art and and literature as i say but it was a very small scale thing and it wasn't as obvious so it was it wasn't yeah it wasn't as obvious when you look to the 60s it just took over everything you know it became part of mass culture so, yeah, all I can say is it looks like it was some kind of dry run, maybe. I'm, I'm, you know, I might be wrong, but it looks like it was a practice run, a very small microcosm version of what was to come in the 1960s. Um, but certainly, as I say, if you look at the backgrounds of, of people that were involved with the Bloomsbury Group, then we start seeing all these nefarious social engineering organisations, the Fabian Society, um, and if you look at Bloomsbury itself, you've got Tavistock, um, the Tavistock Clinic. You've got the London School of Economics has, if you're going to look at the Fabian Society, then by just by nature, just by, you know, you're going to have the London School of Economics attached to that because it was founded by the Fabians. Eugenics, as I say, it, it seems to be another one as well. So, yeah, it, it, 
on the face of it, a, a bystander might look at the Bloomsbury group and think, oh, wow, how cool. You know, there they are meeting every every now and again to talk about art and they're making all these great you know, paintings and they're writing these novels, you know, A Passage to India and Virginia Woolf with all these books and, oh, and, you know, and they're a bit permissive. They, they like to have a bit of a party. It all looks like a bit of fun. And you might you might think that on the face of it. But yeah, but when you look at their connections, you start to see serious heavy duty organizations attached to them. So then you have to start thinking to yourself, well, maybe this wasn't happenstance. Maybe this wasn't um, just coincidence that it was very similar to the 60s, but on a microcosm level. Maybe it was, as I say, a dry run, you know, to something or maybe just the snowball. Maybe it was a snowball that was by the 60s had grown into this huge you know, avalanche, you know. Um, yeah, that's what I think at the moment. I might change my mind tomorrow, but that's how I see it at the moment, yeah. Yeah, I do too. And I think if you look at the characters that were involved, people like John Maynard Keynes, for example, there is no way that he would not he would not have had numerous intelligence agents attached to him. I mean, he was the governor of the Bank of England. He was one of the most important people in the country for pushing forward the agenda of the establishment, going towards fiat currency, for example. So there is no way that they wouldn't have been watching him, knowing what he was up to. And we do know that the intelligence community for a long, long time preferred to have homosexuals working for them because they were more easily controlled because it was illegal. Of course, today it's it's, it's okay to be homosexual publicly. So now they've moved on to uh, pedophiles. That's why they use pedophiles because they can control them through yeah. that. That's what Epstein's all about and Saville and all of those things. It's blackmailable. Uh, and got, yeah, it's blackmailable. Exactly, exactly. So it makes complete sense that all of these people would have been having those relationships and they were getting away with it. But if they were getting away with it, Matt, that does also lead you to believe that perhaps that's that was by design because they were doing what they were meant to do. You know, that was... They were publicly doing this. I don't think it was that hidden that all of these people were sleeping with each other at the time. They spoke about it quite openly. And if you look at the novels and artwork, there was a lot of homoerotic artwork being created mm. as well. I mm. saw some today. I can't remember which member it was, but it was essentially big muscular men naked together doing all kinds of sex acts. So although it's it was probably not quite out in the open, I imagine it was well known within the elite circles what was going on. Therefore, there were some people who would have had blackmail material on them. None of them did get arrested, as far as I know, Matt. I don't, Matt, I don't know if you came up in your research. No, no, there's, there's no, yeah. I don't have any recollection of that. So I think you're right to be suspicious. I'm certainly suspicious. And as we go into part two, I really want to focus in on this tour because I don't know about you, but I believe that you can do a lot of research on histories. You can look into all of the personal research. You can look into all of the families, all of that stuff. But I think until you sometimes go to a place, you don't have that real holistic view of what was going on. I think sometimes you have to see it from their perspective and put yourself in the shoes of these people. So I think that's an awesome piece of research that you've done. And that's what I want to focus on in part two. Before we leave, Matt, can you just give listeners again some direction as to where it's best to find your content? Yeah, there's Conspiro TV, which is my YouTube page where you can find me interviewing various authors and so on with regards to the 60s counterculture or the underground movement, if you like, and also the Beatles, the occult Beatles, talking about elements of that. So I, I yeah, I do my own interviews on there, invite guests along and to talk about those kind of things. Also, my, I have a magical mystery talk uh, podcast that I present on Conspiro TV as well, which looks at the occult conspiratorial elements of the Beatles, which I co-host with Desiree Hall and Mark Devlin. There's Conspiro Media, my website, and there's also the Occult Beatles, my other site where I take a look at the Occult Beatles, conspiratorial occult elements of the band and um, um, people attached to the band who are linked to the band, whether it's solo Beatles or people that are related to them or whatever. Beatles related. Um, so that's that's the Occult Beatles. And there's also my Facebook page, Conspira Media, at Facebook, where you get an amalgamation of all of that, plus extra stuff as well. So it's like a greatest hits album with bonus tracks. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's it, I think. I think I've got them all. Awesome, Matt. I'll leave the links in the description. Members, please head over to parallelmike.com where we're going to be getting straight into part two. We're going to begin with looking a little bit more about John Maynard Keynes because I'd like to explore his links to Malthusianism. He was certainly a depopulationist, and I think that is something that we need to touch upon. 
I also want to then get into this tour because I found it fascinating and I think the members are going to draw a lot from that. So even if you watch it, we'll get into some of the specifics on that, Matt. So thank you so much for your time and members. Yeah, I look forward to joining you in part two. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there for part one, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Members, you're in for a fantastic part two because we go much deeper into this topic and we look specifically at Bloomsbury as a place and we try to understand what is really going on in Bloomsbury. Why were so many key historical figures found to have lived in Bloomsbury for a time, including Vladimir Lenin? Just get this, before the Russian Revolution, he lived in Bloomsbury and just after it, he lived in Bloomsbury also, now knowing what we know about Bloomsbury and who was based there, that really puts a completely different spin on history and what might have been going on with all of these supposed revolutionaries and key proponents of the arts. I think there's something sinister going on here and that is where we're going to go in part two. So members, please head over to parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. If you're not a member yet, please consider signing up to support my content and research. If you are considering joining my private investors coaching this is something I discussed last week and for more information please check out my Telegram group or email me directly but there are only a few spaces left now it is extremely limited and I think by the end of this week there will be zero spaces so if you're considering that please reach out at the earliest opportunity. Thank you all so much for listening, hope you're all well, healthy, reasonably happy and of course I'll see you in the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Really, peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly, expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Peace in our time. Peace in all time.